From the Preservation Maryland studios in the historic podcast district of Baltimore, this is PreserveCast. As America confronts, commemorates, and questions its history, preservationists like Catherine Fleming Bruce are helping to frame those conversations and providing powerful examples of how historic places can help us in these challenging times. Bruce is the author of an award-winning book on sustaining the sacred spaces of civil rights, human rights, and social movements, and how this work can support the march towards greater social justice. It's a weighty topic, but one we must explore, and with someone who knows it well, on this week's PreserveCast. Hey, it's Nick here. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that important conversations like this are possible thanks to listener support. PreserveCast is powered by Preservation Maryland, a nonprofit that believes in expanding the understanding and relevance of history in our lives. So please consider visiting PreserveCast.org, where you can chip in a few dollars to bring more stories like these to an even wider audience. Thanks. And now let's get preserving. Catherine Fleming Bruce is author of the award-winning book, The Sustainers, Being, Building, and Doing Good Through Activism in the Sacred Spaces of Civil Rights, Human Rights, and Social Movements. In 2017, she became the first African-American winner of the annual Historic Preservation Book Prize presented by the University of Mary Washington Center for Historic Preservation in Fredericksburg, Virginia. An alumna of Agnes Scott College with a dual BA in English and Creative Writing and Art, Bruce received her Master of Arts in Mass Communication and Information Studies at the University of South Carolina and also pursued her doctoral studies there. Bruce founded a company which supports engagement in transformational politics, global ethics and norms, and historic and cultural preservation. She has led efforts to preserve important civil rights sites and is currently preserving the Cyril O. Spann Medical Office along with the Visanska Starks House and Carriage House, all in Columbia, South Carolina. She lives in Columbia, South Carolina, and has one son who serves in the United States military. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and today we are joined by Catherine Fleming Bruce, uh, the author of The Sustainers, um, Being, Building, and Doing Good Through Activism in the Sacred Spaces of Civil Rights, Human Rights, and Social Movements. Uh, And we are so excited. It's such a timely conversation to have about this book and um, even about things that have happened, the world is changing so fast even since the book was published and it's it's already in its second edition and probably could be in a third or fourth by now. Um, Catherine, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you with us here today. So excited to talk with you. But before we jump into the book and your research and all of this, where did you grow up and what was your path to preservation? How did you get into all of this? Well, thank you so much for having me, Nicholas. I'm really pleased to be here. Um, I am an Army brat, although a a bit long in the tooth to say so, but yes, I'm an Army brat. So I was born in Kentucky on the military base there, and we lived in several other installations in Texas, and most of a, a good bit of the um, traveling time that I had was in the state of Washington. So my parents, my dad originated from um, New York and was relocated to South Carolina. My mother spent some time in North Carolina, relocated to South Carolina. So that was the home base, Sumter, South Carolina. 
And so after all of these trips, which included Alaska and, you know, some parts of the um, Pacific Northwest, we returned to Sumter. So that's where um, most of my growing up was done. And during that time, um, my dad was really committed to Black history and would provide us books about heroes and legends. And um, there were a couple of uh, other books that people tried to produce to do the best they could to capture black history. He would grab those and make sure we got them. So we always had, and I was the, I was the bookworm in the family. <laughs> so, you know, I, I gobbled all of this up. So we grew up with this sense of history, sense of black history. And as I, um, moved into uh, Columbia, South Carolina after my education in Atlanta, Georgia um, at Agnes Scott College and my return, I was interested in personalities there that connect me to place. So it's kind of easy to go from looking at historic figures to the places that they lived in. And the person that kind of started that for me was Majeska Monteith Simpkins. Majeska was a local um, civil rights activist, very well known uh, in the community. Um, and someone had done a dissertation on her life. And a friend of mine from uh, who worked at the Arts Commission at the time, who did video productions, said, somebody ought to do a documentary on her. And so that's how I met Majeska and we started talking, but I was very interested in her house. And I said, you know, this really ought to be a, uh, a, a preserved site, a museum. So she was like, uh, you know, that's, that's for somebody else to worry about. I don't, you know, I don't care about that sort of thing. Um, but that stuck in my mind after she passed uh, in the um, 1990s. I assumed that something would happen, you know, with the preservation of her house. And uh, after some investigation, I found uh, I found myself actually on an architect. I think it was the American Institute of Architects. Um, they were the people running the annual top ten most um, uh, endangered historic sites. And I was on that committee and there was uh, among the applications was Majeska Simpkins house. I was like, oh, oh, well, I guess nobody is doing anything, you know, as much as I thought that would happen. So I ended up rounding some people up and we formed a nonprofit and we spent the next 10 years working on saving the building. And we were successful in doing that. We were able to transfer um, the property to um, uh, Historic Columbia Foundation because they get a line item in the budget and they would be able to um, sustain the work. But um, that was my entry into the world of preservation. Right. And you you have this background and, you know, we, we gave your bio at the beginning here, but you have this this really interesting background, sort of multidisciplinary. It's political, it's advocacy, it's outreach, it's communications. It almost seems like it was purpose built for preservation because preservation is like the ultimate multidisciplinary. You'd have to be able to do everything from you know, fixing wood windows to making the case before a politician of why it matters. Um, so it yes. kind of like set you up for all of this. And 
your book, The Sustainers, which I mentioned, it's you know, it's in its second edition. Um, seems like it was almost precisely written for the moment that we're now living through. Um, so I'm curious to kind of to start to lay the the groundwork, and and I hope I mean you know this is probably going to come off sounding like an extended commercial for this book, but the book is very good. I just I just read just finished reading it, and thank you, I'm, thank I'm you so much. A big fan. I think everybody should should pick it up. But where did the idea for the book come from? So was it sort of this experience of you lived through it, and now you're like you want to tell more people, or what precipitated the book itself? Uh, well, what what happened was, you know, I'd written several drafts of um, portions of the book, um, some for um, my grad student work and some uh, just to go in the library to preserve. I hadn't thought about doing an entire book. But in 2013, uh, that came the anniversary, the 50th anniversary of 1963. And Birmingham was going to um, do a large series of events and um, the city of Columbia, where I live, our mayor, uh, Mayor Steve Benjamin, who um, has had multiple um, national roles um, by, by, you know, by this point. But at that point, you know, he was still our mayor, but he was very interested in history and civil rights. And he reached out to the mayor of Birmingham to say, let's, you know, we want to join you in that effort. And several other cities also joined in. So it was um, Memphis, um, Jackson, uh, uh, Atlanta, a couple of other cities. So from there, I said, you know, I've been thinking about doing this book on the history of my own work in preservation. But I was also curious about these other stories. And I realized that often when you go to preserve sites, that's not the story that you hear. You know, you hear, you know, you hear the story of the of the site and the people are connected with the site, not the work under that. And I know that it had taken us, you know, a decade to get this work done. And so I wanted to know what the other experiences were like. So I decided to do a symposium and try to find the people who had been uh, working on those um, sites or who really were responsible for championing uh, the preservation of those civil rights sites. So I wasn't able to find some of the stories and I did restrict my stories to actual preservation sites as opposed to the brand new civil rights buildings that you will see in Atlanta and some other places. I wanted to stick solely to preservation. So those that I was that I was able to identify within those cities, we had that symposium. So it was really wonderful. I got to meet the person who was behind the preservation of the um, of the uh, Lorraine Motel in um in tennessee in memphis and you know what a what a what a moment to be able to meet such a person so each of those stories were told within that context and then i decided to expand that to a book to to keep those stories um going and so i added a few other stories to that uh including um uh the selman to montgomery trail 
the um, the site in New York where Malcolm X was killed, the um, you know a few others. I added those in, and uh, yeah, and also the um, the Emanuel Nine. I talked about that building as well here in uh, Charleston. So, and this is the the privilege of being self published. <laughs> because you get to say, hey, wait, you know, I want to add this. And there's nobody saying, no, you've already done enough. You know, you can keep going. Um, so I, I did the book. And one other little note about um, self-publishing is that after I won the Historical Preservation Book Prize in um, 2016 and went up to uh, received that award. I was also invited to another book event in Virginia. And so we had authors together and I had my book with me and one of the authors was flipping through and she was like, how'd you get all these color pictures in here? My publisher wouldn't let me do that. I said, well, I'm the publisher. That's how come that happened. Yeah. So it made me realize what a benefit it was um, to do that. Yeah. And it really goes, I mean, it goes deep into these stories and, and it is, I mean, it's fascinating and also, I mean, just sort of maddening to understand how long it took, I mean, at the Lorraine hotel and just, I mean, the struggle to, to protect these sites, um, which, you know, is just part and parcel of the sites themselves and the stories. And not only was there a struggle for civil rights, but just even the struggle to save the sites. I mean, it it sort of almost like repeats itself in kind of a sad way, but sustainers so let's talk about that let's let's kind of play out some of these things so the sustainers are preservationists i guess which i I think is cool that you've coined a different term because i think preservationists it conjures up a whole bunch of oftentimes bad images is sustainer something that you think is a is it a better way to explain the work that people do in these communities well, I, I thought of a sustainer as a person who has either stumbled upon or somehow encountered this place that they have become so um, enamored with and committed to um, making sure that story stays alive with the idea that it has something to transfer to current generations and future generations, a very particular set of stories that they want to uh, continue, not just something in the past. So I think of the sustainer as somebody who struggles in a similar way as the person who is trying to achieve civil rights. And I tend to think of the work as being related uh, the work of restoring and preserving a civil rights site is related to the work that the actual people there did. And that if those stories go fallow and uncovered, then people don't realize that they are following the footsteps of other leaders, other people who have been working in the vineyards um, for justice. They think it's something that just kind of mushroomed out of, you know, out of their own um, intelligence and, and wit and courage. And surely those things are there, but it encourages people to see themselves as part of a continuum. So the sustainer is the person doing that work of making sure that the 
earmarks and hallmarks and landmarks are there to tell people this story happened here is part of your current story is part of your future story. And so, and, and in doing so, um, they are contributing to, um, to our call for justice. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting that you describe, we talked about this before we even started recording, but you describe, um, these places and you often refer to them as battlefields, which I think is an interesting way of sort of reframing it in people's minds. Um, Mm -hmm. And you, you suggest though, that at the same time they can inspire and they can sort of demonstrate human goodness. And so do you have an, an example of a site that, that really kind of that speaks to you that you really feel that goodness at it? Um, well, I, I think of uh, the Malcolm X site, I think the uh, Audubon Ballroom hmm. is a good um, example of that, where the ballroom was a place for Malcolm to come during his time when he was trying to organize um, the organization of African unity. And he would have these speeches in the community from that stage um, on a regular basis, um, the last speech ending in his death. So being able to preserve that site helps us to connect back to his work globally and doing global work in a localized way, you know, because he had already finished his tours um, of, of the African continent and these other locations. So now his global work became local and he was enabled um, through opening that space for him to do that, allowing the public to come in from the interact with him. Uh, it did end in his sacrifice. So he became a martyr to that cause of, of trying to embrace the public in his work. So that was, that sacrifice was certainly a public good and that laid fallow for a long time because there was a argument in the community about whether the building was worth saving. And of course, once people heard that, and you had folks galvanize and um, from, from students to community people um, to make sure that didn't happen. But there was a question about whether preserving that building was a social good or if there's something else that could be put there that would be more beneficial to jobs and you know whatever was going to happen with this extension of Columbia University that had been proposed. You talk about sort of t- towards, the, I think it might even be the end of the book, but sort of this idea of like the future of all of this. And I think we can touch on that maybe towards the, the end of our conversation, but mm-hmm. is preservation the thing that you really should be doing or is there some other societal good? And I mean, that's kind of what you're getting at here with Audubon, which is like, is, is this the best thing, the highest and best use for this space and this land? And for the limited capital and capacity of communities, should they be investing in this? And I, I think you make a pretty pretty good argument that this this should be balanced along with the rest, but we can't just forget about where we came from. And right. I think that that does sort of beg the question, too, about what we're living through right now. So with Black Lives Matter sites, 
which you define in the book as sites of shooting deaths of unarmed African Americans. Mm-hmm. How do they fit into this, right? Because I mean, it was you know as you were publishing the book, Ferguson had only happened, I guess, mm-hmm. a few years prior, and obviously, so much more has happened even since. Yeah. Um, and I, I forget who it was. It might have been Will Smith or somebody who said that racism isn't increasing; it's just we're taping it now, and mm-hmm. um, and so we're 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 seeing more of this now, and it, it really is just front and center. And can these sites inspire? And what about preserving and commemorating them? How do we, where, where are we headed with this? And, and where has your, maybe your, the research that you've done and the work that you've done looking at previous civil rights sites, how does that sort of inform what might happen with these sites? Well, you know, most of what I saw with regard to the um, shooting victims was murals. And, um, you know, you have things that happen later on, street namings and, you know, other kinds of pieces that go in. But the first thing that usually happens, of course, is the, the stuffed animals and the things of that nature. And then the next thing will go up is some kind of visual uh, expression that can remain. Um, and you see that you've seen that with George Floyd, uh, recently we've seen that with, um, Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. you know, so she has a new large mural. Uh, I think it's in Maryland, it's, isn't it's it? It's in Annapolis. Yeah. 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 Well, yes, yes. So, so that has gone up. Um, and in our state of South Carolina, um, recently taking from the black lives matter, um, written lettering that has gone into the streets. There's a recent, as, as recent as last week, uh, street markings that say no room for racism with paintings of the Friendship Nine uh, in the, you know, making up the word racism there. So the, and the way I look at that with regard to my work is that this is an effort to lift up the humanity of these individuals who were killed with the main point being that um, they're not seen as human and they're not treated um, in a just way during these encounters, you know, uh, concluding with their lives being ended. And so we want to present them as the human being that we knew and loved and embraced and try to um, commemorate that and and make that permanent in the community. And so much of that, it seems like, has been missing, I guess. Particularly, let's say we go back to African-American history of the 19th century and slavery and historic sites that maybe, maybe mention slavery or maybe don't, but they're missing the humanity. So it's almost like, in a sense, maybe we've learned a little bit from that in that you know, you go to these sites and they're they're nameless or they just have a first name. And it's almost like their humanity is lost to history. And so I guess in some way, if people are aware of it or not, this is sort of a reaction to that and capturing the humanity in these in these places. Yeah, quite so. And, you know, I think we can some of us who have been working for a long time can remember that evolution in museum and uh, history organization where a lot of the focus was slavery, antebellum, so forth, you know, here in our city, 
that was the focus for a long time. And there were only a very few people who were doing oral history interviews of civil rights leaders. And, you know, because our mythology at the time was that, oh, the civil rights didn't happen here. It happened in Atlanta. It happened in other places. You know, we had this nice, quiet thing where, you know, people did stuff behind the scenes and we're very proud because we didn't have fighting and protests and all of that. And so eventually that has been uncovered to be, no, that that's not the case at all. You know, we've had, you know, we all have those, um, those parts of the history in our community and they do speak to our humanity. So we're, we're now looking at the opportunity to do a more well-rounded presentation that hopefully can be taken on into our everyday interactions. So I think one of the other interesting things that you've talked about and that you, you, you mentioned in the book is that you talk about how certain sites can capture and reflect the energy of the, the experience. And I think that this is something, this is like a universal beyond just civil rights sites, but I mean, just something you capture here is that you know, sites can, can kind of continue to resonate that energy. And in, and in this case, in, in many of the, these civil rights sites, um, that's obviously a good thing. Like what you're talking about before, where it's sort of continuing on that work and sort of this sense of, yeah. um, you know, a shared future. Um, but sites can also channel negative energy. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, think of, you know, uh, Emmett Till or, you know, places where something really horrendous happened. Um, right. Can sites do both? Is there is there such a thing as a neutral historic site, or is it is there is is there sort of this balance at all sites? How how do you kind of reconcile the good and the bad in a historic site? Well, I think all of them, you know, particularly civil rights, any that have some kind of movement justice um, challenge component to it are going to have both. Um, You know, that's why it took the King site so long to be preserved is that people wanted the whole thing to go away. Hmm. (laughs) You know, that was the attitude. It's like, you know, we had this horrible thing in our, happened in our community And, you know, we want to show people that we're, you know, we're a progressive city and we're, you know, we have commerce and, you know, we have equal opportunity and all that. So let's just forget all of these things that that happen that are so painful. So this is why, um, you know, it took being on the auction block for the Lorraine Motel to be rescued. You know, it it had gone down that um, path as well. You also have um, how different people in the community might view that, you know, people who are close to the individuals, people who have, you know, their own ideas about how um, that history ought to be described and played out or if certain parts should be hidden and not discussed. Uh, and we, we see that with, I guess, the, the part of King's life that he was having affairs or uh, whether or not this or that person was um, involved in um, same-sex activities. You know, so there are lots of, of pieces that people may want to control, which have other forms of negative negativity to it. But it's all part, all this is part of our journeying as a community to finally 
come to grips with race. I don't know if you can ever say finally. I think these are things that have to continue to be wrestled with with every new generation. You know, they don't go away. Right. You know, because it's part of the human condition, I, I fear. You know, and we, we have to have new generations of people who are going to reinterpret, who are going to recommit um, to justice and democracy and uh, principles of equality. Yeah, and you have to have a, a place to do that. And yes. what more fitting a place than these places where you're going to wrestle with those? What stories do you tell? Who do you talk about? What What is fair game? What isn't? What's too painful? What isn't painful enough? But where else to do that but these places where it unfolded? And, you know, I wonder, too, and you don't really I don't remember you getting this in the book, but I'm curious if you have a thought on this, which is, you know, the preservation community is overwhelmingly white. I mean, at least the the professional preservation community. And it's something that, you know, the preservation community wrings their hands on and wants to change and wants to fix. Do you think that that's, I mean, I know that there's no one answer to this and there's probably a lot of reasons that that's the case, but what role do you think the fact that it's been so hard to protect these types of sites and sites where African-Americans can see themselves in and see themselves reflected is, is that, do you think that's one of the biggest barriers that if we, if we have more of these sites and there is a more, full telling of history, it seems to me that that that, that could potentially bring in more African-Americans into the preservation community, which is such a critical component of the future. Because if the preservation community isn't reflective and doesn't look like the communities that it serves, then it's it's not going to be relevant anymore. Right, right. I would say, you know, just just on my experiences, that there are always people who are trying to be preservationists. Now, I myself am not somebody who, you know, my my degrees are in English, creative writing, art, journalism, you know, so so that wasn't, you know, my area. You know, I, I studied ethics and international law and other things. So that wasn't my professional area, but I was doing the work and I'm still doing the work. So I think part of what needs to happen is to find a way to support the people who are doing the work, mm-hmm. even though they may not be, um, they, even though they may not have the protection of an institution, you know, that provides us funding, either a university academic institution or a nonprofit institution. They may not have those things yet, but they're out there. And I think, as you see people in this debate with the monuments. And, you know, we actually had that debate back with the, um, with the Confederate flag on the state house right. and that um, started and, you know, went up through Charlottesville and, you know, some other uh, events. So now that argument is coming up anew with a lot more young people involved. So you do have a window to talk to people about, okay, what, what is going to be important and how can we engage you in further preservation right. efforts? Yeah. And I think how do we shift the conversation from, and I, I don't want this taken the wrong way, the monuments, I mean, uh, you know, that's a whole other podcast that we could do, I guess, but yes, I mean, yes, but yes, taking yes. down the monuments is one thing, but then 
securing funding to preserve places and and tell the history that deserves to be told is another part of it. And I I don't know if we've moved fully into that yet. Um, that yeah, that sometimes exactly. is harder. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so that's an opportunity to to bring new people in who are interested in that dialogue to say what are some things if you want if you wanted to rescue some things what would they be. Um, even if you wanted to start with the portraits of um, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, if you wanted to start with that and then move on to physical buildings, then educate people and bring them in to what it takes to do that and to see who is going to respond to providing the, uh, the resources that are needed to do that. And also make it something, you know, because the other challenge that we're going to have now with preservation, and I'm sure it has been a subject, is uh, is COVID. Right. Yes. So so we now are looking at, okay, how are we going to do this whole preservation thing uh, with regard to that? And so we're going to have to develop new models of the how the buildings are used safely. And hopefully that will only last until, you know, the vaccine comes into play and then we'll be able to to move on from there. But you'll always have to have these contingency contingency plans for the use of the buildings within society. Yeah. How they can invent a number of different um, projects. Yeah. And and buildings have to serve a purpose and they have to be relevant and, um, you know, all that good stuff. So let's do some some rapid fire future questions here. Um, okay. what places should be preserved, but still aren't what's on your, what's on Catherine Fleming Bruce's wish list of, if I had a, I had all the money I could do it, I would go and preserve fill in the blank. Well, you know, there's still a, um, uh, a still small number of women's sites that are being preserved, um, proportionately. So I would like to see more sites that talk about the role of women and the leadership of women uh, in history and in current uh, social struggles. I would like to see that. I'm very interested in, and you know, I'm I'm still working on a site myself. We have um, a site that's connected to uh, one of the early black surgeons who was active during the civil rights period and also went throughout the state um, working with other doctors, providing that that um, health care that people didn't have access to. So I'm very interested in sites that talk about health care access for black and brown people and how they resolved, how they worked to resolve the problem of this access and how we're kind of up and down, just like in the civil rights struggle, you see it up and down with the access to healthcare issue. Right. Um, hospitals were built and most of them were closed uh, during the, the, the 70s, the 60s and 70s around the country as hospitals became integrated, new hospitals were built. Um, but we still have a majority of people who don't have access. So telling that story is of great interest to me in preserving the history that shows the segregation of the sites 
and how those individuals try to pre try to create a um, solution uh, to the problem. What happened to the solution, and what can we learn from that today as we're struggling with these same problems of access? Yeah, and much like civil rights, it it sort of informs our future and and kind of gives us a sense for where we're at now and and perhaps how we got there and maybe in an optimistic way how we get out of it. Very much so. What are the most what are the most what are the biggest barriers to this work? What do you need most and and I guess as a follow-up to that, if people want to be supportive not only of of you and the things you do, but things that are happening like this in their community, what should they do? So, what are the barriers and what can people do? Well, I think I think the biggest barrier has always been uh, allocation of funding. Uh, in my state, well, I'm, I won't say the whole state. I'll just say in our community of Columbia, we have one um, source of funding for preservation projects that comes from the county. And we have a little bit of money that comes from the state um, SHPO, um, Historic Preservation uh, Office. So we don't have a lot of committed funding for the brick and mortar buildings. We also have hospitality tax funding, but that money has not been allowed to be used for that purpose. So I think that's one of the biggest problems is figuring out new sources of um, funding for these projects. I think most of them now are, we're doing the, um, the tax, um, what, what is the it? Tax credits. Um, tax credits, yes. And, and a credit means that you have money and you spend it and you, right. <laughs> so, that's, so that's, that's for developers, you know, that's clearly not for, for us. So what's going to happen is if most of the projects are being funded by developers, there's a whole lot that's going to be left on the cutting room floor or that never um, gets a chance at being considered for funding. So a lot of these projects of black and brown history will, will not make it uh, to the table unless there's dedicated funding for that. So I, I would say that's a, the biggest problem, but also how to make that a priority or how to make that a higher priority in the minds of funders is also a, a challenge. Uh, and it's a challenge in general for the preservation community. But certainly, you know, we talked about that, you know, when I was doing the Majesco project, people would say, well, you know, the money that you're raising, you know, it could go for this or that social cause. So we had the same discussion, but everybody who steps foot in the Majesco building or in the Rain Motel, or you know, on the Selma Montgomery Trail, um, or in the building where um, Jackson, Mississippi, the NAACP um, leader who was assassinated, Medgar um, Evers. Medgar, yeah. So you know, when you're in those buildings, that's all you need to know. You know that that's why they're important. You can feel it. So. What's next for you? Um, where can people find you if they want to learn more and um, anything that you're writing right now? Oh, well, I'm, I'm mostly working on um, 
political stuff right now. You know, we have uh, you know, a lot of people who are running for office this year. And I think that's one of the most important things that we can pay attention to. However, I am working on the uh, Cyril O'Stan Medical Building Project uh, in Columbia, South Carolina. So we're very excited about that. We just, um, we got a um, federal historic preservation grant and we got the match from Dominion Energy. So as we speak, that assessment is happening of the building and then we'll have a plan for restoration of that. And we want that building to open in conjunction with um, the Good Samaritan Waverly Hospital owned by Allen University. So they're also restoring that building. And these buildings are, um, and between them is the Vizanska Starks house. All three of them have markers and they're all related in that um, Dr. Spann was the um, chief of staff for Good Samaritan Waverly Hospital. So all three of those markers were there. Two of them were just put up last year. Uh, we're in the process of restoring and hopefully opening those buildings um, next year. So that entire block will be transformed by this work that we're doing. And, you know, we also wanted to point out that the Good Samaritan Waverly Hospital is going to be named in honor of the Emanuel Nine who were killed in the, in the Charleston uh, shooting um, because three of those individuals are graduates of Allen University. So uh, we planted a tree in front of the Dr. Spann building, which we call the Tree of um, Peace and Resistance as a way to connect the public health um, issue with um, the issue of uh, civil rights and peace and nonviolence. So we'll be able to continue to have those discussions. So that's the biggest preservation project that I'm working on right now. Love for people to, um, to order the book since it's been um, put out there. Um, we'd like for people to use it in their discussions on why it's important to, to focus on civil rights buildings, civil rights history, um, Hopefully it will lead some of them to become activists in that area as well. Um, and to teach future generations of people who could be um, doing this work of sustaining our buildings. Yeah. And it's, I would agree all with that. And um, I like how you just sort of mentioned that you're redoing an entire city block basically. And you're like, Oh, that just does that little project that, I guess I have that going on. Uh, but So there's that. And, and I would also say, as someone who works in this and you know lives and breathes this, there's a lot to be to be gained from reading the book. So I would encourage people to pick it up. I think that there's a lot of insight and it's it's really helpful read um, and fun too. Um, just well done. So thank you so much for this. Um, before we go, most difficult question for anybody who comes on: your favorite historic place or site? Hmm. Let's see. You know, I, I uh, went to Washington, D.C. Um, a couple of years ago and just had a little bit of time to visit a site. And I decided to visit the uh, Library of Congress. And I really love the Library of Congress. It's just 
it's fabulous. And, you know, so, so for a bookworm, whatever answer would you get that a library as a, as a favorite place? But it did offer uh, a number of very interesting exhibits, including one on race. Yep. Um, it had George Washington's books or Thomas Jefferson's books at that time. Um, it had something from an international perspective. And, you know, just so many things um, that are um, that capture the imagination. And isn't that where, um, that's the scene where um, uh, the, the Watergate um, journalists were at that table with the cards. Didn't they do that in the Library of Congress? It, it might have been, I don't know, but it's it definitely is by far one of the most beautiful interiors in the world. I mean, it is, it is something else. Um, and yes. um, Baltimore's own Carla Hayden is now the... Uh, the librarian of the Congress um, and the first African-American female uh, head of the Library of Congress, which is pretty cool and came out of uh, the Baltimore public library system. So um, that's that's amazing. Bringing it full circle, almost a civil rights site unto itself. Another, uh, you know, glass ceiling broken. So um, a good way to end a fantastic conversation. This has been so much fun. Um, we could do this probably every week because there's so much to learn from all the work that you've done. And, and I appreciate all the good work that you've done and what you've got coming. And hopefully we can have you back on again in the future to talk about um, some more successes under your belt. I'd love to. Thank you so much. This has been fun. Thank you. I love it. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's show, notes, and all previous episodes, visit PreserveCast.org. You can also find us online at Facebook and Twitter at PreserveCast. This program was supported by the Historic Preservation Education Foundation. PreserveCast is produced by Preservation Maryland in Baltimore City. Thanks again for your support, and remember to keep preserving.